Welcome to Center Stage with international opera star Pamela Kuhn. And now, here is your host, Pamela Kuhn. And the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Every once in a while, a performer emerges who possesses a huge talent that is matched by a wow factor zest for life. I have that performer for you today, an amiable Australian by the name of Stuart Skelton, a Heldon tenor star of major opera houses around the world and a favorite of A-list orchestral conductors. Stuart Skelton is impressing the world with a thrilling vocal sound that is trademarked by finery. He opened this season at the Metropolitan Opera in what is becoming one of his signature roles, Tristan in Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. But first, let's clarify what a Helden tenor actually is. The term literally means heroic. This is a voice classification that describes a voice which is significant for a dark, rich, and almost baritone-like quality. Heroic stands for the roles that he can personify with a size of voice that can penetrate a large, usually Wagnerian-sized orchestra. What sets Stuart Skelton's voice apart from others is the particular beauty of his heroic sound, but more importantly, his ability to turn a phrase that is somehow delicate. It goes straight to the listener's heart. When you hear this thrilling singer, you know this man was born to interpret great music. When he speaks about his life, it's a jovial cyclone ride of musical ideas, eloquence, and a feisty zest for life. Everything about Mr. Skelton is large, from his robust laugh that matches his tall frame to his huge personality that can fill and dominate a room. Or as the independent newspaper in London says, he is a great blonde bear of an Australian with a voice of unparalleled beauty and strength. I can't say it any better than that. When this blonde bear of a man comes into a room with his big smile, you might be fooled to think he is a rugby player. And perhaps this is when the finery in his musicianship is most appreciated. I recently caught up with Stuart Skelton in Palm Beach, Florida, where, before flying off to Paris to sing Lohengrin, he was performing for Palm Beach Opera in one of their outdoor affairs. I attended a master class that he conducted with apprentices from the Palm Beach Opera Young Artist Program the day before his concert. I was immediately won over by the way he addressed the young singers. He had a delicate intimacy of spirit as if to say, I'm on your side, while coaching them with a distinct orchestral awareness. If I hadn't known better, I would have thought he was a string player by the way he approached the musical score. He was energized, funny, and genuine to the young singers performing for him that day, and he was good enough to speak about all the mistakes that he had made as a young singer, offering up his stories so they could learn from his tough honesty. I was reminded then that great teaching still abounds in the music business. He and I sat down at his hotel in Palm Beach to discuss his career so far, his love for operatic roles such as Peter Grimes and Tristan, why the meditative art of smoking a cigar and a creative cocktail are important to him, and how he respectfully calls a music score the instructional manual. But let's listen to the magic in the voice. Here is Stuart Skelton singing Winterstürme, Wichen den Wohnenmund from Die Walküre by Wagner with the Hong Kong Philharmonic. He was very pleased with this new recording, and I want you to listen to the powerful yet extraordinarily sensitive phrasing in this aria. (laughs) 
And I'm here on center stage with the wonderful Hilden tenor, Stuart Skelton. Stuart, thank you so much for being on the show. Pamela, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And it was a joy, first of all, to see you as Tristan in the new production um, at the Met in, in September. Well, that was a wild ride, wasn't it? It was a wild ride. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But what beautiful singing. And I've thank got you. to say right off the bat that there was something in your singing, the, the beauty, um, the grace of your sound. You are a Hilden tenor, and you are so rich, and you are so compelling, but at the same time, I always felt that we had the, the beauty of a Schubert song. Well, I think one of the things, this was, I was very lucky. This was instilled into me very early um, when I was at, 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 at since uh, CCM in the mid-90s. I had the, the good fortune to study with both Tom Barrassel and Barbara Hahn, and they both agreed to sort of bring to bear their particular uh, expertise uh, from different points of view for my singing. And while I was there, I ended up singing for Richard Castley, who you will remember was an absolute physical bear of a man. And I sang some stuff for him, and he took, took me aside at the end and said, 
Mr. Stewart, I want you to promise me something. And I said, anything, because you kind of scare me, because he's huge. Um, he said, I want you, in the repertoire that you are inevitably going to sing, I want you to promise me that you will sing it as beautifully as you can for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And I really took that to heart. And mm-hmm. it's something that I, I pass on now to, to singers, because, y- you know... You can't really pin people to the seat unless they're sitting on the edge of it first. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's right. You've got to get them, got to draw them forward in their in their seat, or draw them forward as a concept before you can pin them to the back of their seat. And I think beauty does that. I think elegant singing, classy singing, will do that every time. Um, and there's nothing about Wagner that says it can't be classy. Ludwig Sudhaus, Setz Holm, these guys were classy Wagnerian singers. James King. Yes, that's right. I mean, just, I mean, you know, it was, it was a virile, masculine, bronzy sound, but damn, it was always beautiful. And I think that's really important um, that in this repertoire where amplitude can often be your only goal, mm-hmm. I think it's... It's a shame because there is so much beauty in in, in, in Wagner, uh, even in Tristan. Uh, there's so much vocal and musical beauty. I, the score is an instruction manual. If you follow it, you're probably in good shape. You know, and you, I was hearing you this afternoon in a master class <laughs> at Palm Beach Opera with some of the young artists, and you talked about that instruction manual all the time. Yeah. And you and I know that when Wagner wrote a, a, a piano or a pianissimo, he really meant it. It's absolutely. very clearly marked. Yeah, absolutely. And when he meant that, when he did write that, he also made sure that the orchestral scoring was such that that was an achievable goal. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, it really is. It's the la- second half of the 19th century where the the composers really started to be quite fastidious about their markings and what they meant. I mean, certainly Massenet is, 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 is gospel. You know what he writes in the score, uh, and he was so. De- and Mahler's the same, although post Wagnerian. Um, he's so fastidious about. Uh, every aspect of, of what he required from bar to bar to the point where he's telling the conductors at this point you start in three but over time make sure that you, you move into conducting in one those sorts of really specific instructions and they're great these are the, the, the greatest orchestral and opera composers in the history of ever mm-hmm. it behooves you I think at some point to at least give their instruction manual a go <laughs> It does, really you know, does as much as much as I'm not an instruction re- instruction manual reader, and I don't ask for directions and all those sorts of things like every other male on the planet. You're a typical guy, yeah. exactly. But you know, with Wagner and Britten and Verdi and Strauss, you know, at least read their instructions first. And if the instructions don't work for you, or some of them don't work, then find another way. But I suspect that if you really do follow their instructions. Uh, yeah that gives you the freedom to be as compelling as you can be as a performer. Mm-hmm. Well said. Now listen, Stuart, how did you come to singing? I, I, I read that you started singing at age nine when uh, you were singing in, in choir. Yeah, I was, uh, I was in a cathedral, uh, cathedral school choir at an Episcopalian Church of England, Episcopalian Cathedral School Choir, from the age of eight or nine right through my high school. Uh, and I was taking piano lessons and... Um, the, that sort of 19th century English choral tradition training is... It's impeccable. It's absolutely impeccable. You, you, if you're not a musician, you're made into one mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. Um, and, of course, when you're, when you're eight, 
if you're having all this music thrown at you all of the time, an eight-year-old doesn't realise that that's even remotely difficult. You just sponge it up like you mm-hmm. do when you're eight. You know, you mm-hmm. everything that everything that comes to you is like that's something I have to learn. So you just do, you know, question it. But to have that uh, musical education become a second skin for you to have it inculcated from such an early age and have so much music thrown at you all of the time mm-hmm. um, really just becomes a part of your DNA to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Now I spent uh, some years you know, doing other things and ignoring or desperately trying to ignore the fact that I should have been a musician for a living and I finally got there you know that was the thing is that all the all of the the, the, the divergent paths that people take um, when I when it finally dawned on me that I should be doing what I'm doing um, I was a little bit later than than some of my colleagues at graduate school but not by much only two or three years mm-hmm. um, and it just felt like a homecoming you know one the study of singing at first felt like a homecoming and then when I finally and not many years after that when I finally found the repertoire that my voice had been looking for uh, although it's the repertoire that I think my teachers already knew I was headed for but didn't sort of talk all that much about it for fear of it becoming a thing uh, you know a mental wall to have to try and scale um once I found that, that that too was, felt like a, a vocal homecoming. The very first, I remember the first time I walked off stage having done my first performance of Lohengrin ever. I was what, 29? 29. Yeah, I think 29, 30. And although I was physically tired and, emo- and mentally just wrung out, mm-hmm. my voice was fresh. I thought, geez, there's something in that, isn't there? Yeah, you're there doing really something right. is. I you're, must be right doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I also will maintain that Lohengrin taught me to sing really? in a way that, prior to that, I'd been working up to that. But having to negotiate the rehearsal period and performances of Lohengrin really became a very steep but very profitable learning curve in terms of the fact I knew you. I learned very quickly what was required and how to get through something that long that's absolutely it was a really remarkable uh, thing to come off that after that first performance and realize that of all of the parts of me that were tired the voice wasn't one of them and that was a I was surprised by that I really was I remember being quite taken aback that that was true Mm -hmm. but then I realized that the truth of that that situation was I must be in the right place That's why, and that's why it felt like a homecoming. Is there it is. The light went on. Yeah. I remember calling Barbara mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. when they offered me the contract. You know, Carlsruhe have offered me the fest contract um, for for two years, and they want me to do my first long run. And Barbara said, "Sweetie, are they paying you?" And I said, "Yeah." She said, "Why are you calling me?" Exactly. You know, she said, you know, you said you've got the voice for it. This is what you this is it's a small house, it's a long rehearsal period, it's an A orchestra with a terrific conductor, mm-hmm. um, very experienced conductor in this repertoire. It's a twelve hundred seat auditorium. Mm-hmm. Not too and, big. No, you've yeah. got seven weeks of rehearsal, you can you're you're fest on contract, so you can get three coachings a day if you want. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not gonna have any problem um, singing it in. You can sing it twenty four seven if you and they'll and they'll provide someone in a in, put you in a room with a piano to play play it with you. You'd be mad to say no. 
Uh, and if you sing it and you get through it and you and you love it, great. And if you don't, then put it away for twelve months and have another go at it in twelve months. You'll learn. You'll know. You'll learn. So I took her at a word and said, Righto. And it was a learning curve. It was a steep one during the rehearsal process. But it was. I just realised this is. I'm, my voice is in the place it's supposed to be after not really knowing where it belonged when I was a young artist in San Francisco. What do you do with a 25 year old guy who's going to sing Love Again in four years? Mm-hmm. I mean, how mm-hmm. useful are you doing Opera House? You're not. I was dead weight to a certain mm-hmm. extent in San Francisco. I didn't want to be. But you can't really have me covering the things. Yeah. That, that the more traditional route you can't really do that so mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you end up being a lot doing all of the compromario stuff which is fine because you're on stage all of the time mm-hmm. with great colleagues and great stage directors and great conductors and so it's still a learning curve yeah. you're always learning something but I wasn't I don't think uh, as useful to them as a young artist as some of my colleagues were because they were, they were different voices and they were doing different repertoire and you could put them on stage now immediately mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. and you couldn't do that with me right. Um, right. So it was a slightly slower process, but I remember when Lohengrin and Eric first came along, as intimidating as singing Wagner at any age is, um, the intimidation thing was a big fear of failure. It's a big motivator, you know? Uh, And I thought I, I didn't want the intimidation factor to get the best of me. So I just decided not to let it do that. And I've been seeing Lohengrin ever since, and I'm just heading off to Paris now that's to do so another fun. run at the that's Paris so with the, the Opera Bastille. So that's so solid. Um, now you said I heard you say earlier today mm. that you had been trained originally as a baritone. I did. I started as a baritone. I wasn't a baritone for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, my singing teacher, my very first singing teacher, when my voice broke, I was in the basses in the choir. That's where my voice sat. And this is in Sydney. Yeah, and it's where, it's where it's where my speaking voice still sits to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to a singing teacher because the choir master suggested it would help with the transition after my voice had broken. So I did. Seemed like a sensible thing to do. Uh, and he listened to me sing for a couple because I'd not really sung any solo stuff apart from church music at that point. And we did little, you know, Italian art songs from the 18th century, those sorts of things, you know. Uh, and they were all in the sort of the baritone key. Um, and nobody said anything about it. We just we did that and looked at some stuff and then. He just he said, "Oh, look, we should look at this one." And I, unbeknownst to me, well, not unbeknownst to me, but I was ignoring it, was that now they're in the tenor key, and everything felt a little different. Mm-hmm. But there was there was a quality that obviously he heard um, in the voice, although it had the baritonal color, that it wasn't actually uh, it wasn't actually a baritone voice. And he slowly but surely, very gently without sort of making a big deal of it because I think sometimes if you're a baritone if you're not a baritone but you start out as a baritone the minute you put the tenor word out there alarm bells go and you start to panic and you think oh this is something I'm going to have to negotiate and think about and, <laughs> and we're tenors we don't think about anything you know we have we, we are notorious having no brains so it was it was a very gentle and 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 very easy process to to move into the into the tenor repertoire. I mean, the very first tenor, I think the very t- first tenor aria I learned was Lansky. I was like, what, 19, 20? And so when that moment happened and the high notes came, did you feel like you were putting on a, a good pair of good-fitting shoes? I mean, it, it just... No, actually, I remember, rem- remember hearing an interview with Placido Domingo 
And he said he wasn't a natural tenor in the same way that Pavarotti was. And I'm the same thing. I built the top of my voice note half step by half right. step. And it took, a, it took a while. That's right. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, and I had to, I had to, I had to build that in. Um, which is not a bad thing. Because as you, if when you're building something like that, rather than it coming naturally, you know exactly why it works. You work it out. That's right. That's um, so that was quite useful. It's been very useful for me in the long run, particularly if you're doing Strauss rolls, um, which are just fiendishly high, although blessedly short. Um, uh, that you need to you need to know you need to have all of your ducks in a row mm-hmm. to make that work as you'd like it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very lucky that I had to sort of build that half step by half step over time Um, so I'm pleased now in retrospect that I think that it went the way that it did. I often feel sorry for the natural singers who haven't worked things out because there will come a time as you and I know when they're pressed against the wall things aren't working for them and things start to fall apart I've known several of those singers so I think the ones that do have to construct and really get it solid are are ahead of the game. Yeah I was I mean I was obviously at the time when I'm at graduate school I'm, I'm looking at these singers who just I had a colleague, a mate of mine, uh, who would wake up in the morning and have a top F. I mean, and a, but he wasn't like a he was he wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a, a small Rossini sounding voice. Uh, it was it was a full, a really quite a beautiful, um, full lyric tenor voice that just had this ridiculous extension. Uh, and I used to just hate the guy. I mean, just I was so jealous. Just, I really was because that's you know I, that's what I wanted to be able to do and I just couldn't do it I had to build it half step by half step you know um, mm-hmm. but I, I think at the end of the day having to have to having had to have worked at it to get it right is, is I know when it's working why it's working and if it doesn't work I know why and I can fix it yeah exactly <laughs> you've got yeah. your tool chest yeah exactly and you've, <laughs> you've, you've got a plan for everything exactly yeah. exactly um Let's get down to you, the person. Yes, ma'am. I, I hear that you really enjoy a good cigar. I and, do. Uh, and you really love shaking those cocktails. I am guilty as charged, I'm afraid. You're a bit of a foodie? Yes, I am. Um, I is that one of your joys? It is, one of my joys. Um, food, wine, uh, uh, and cocktails. And the, 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 the cigar thing uh, is, is an interesting thing because... I'm not a smoker, mm-hmm. and cigar smoking isn't really smoking, but it is a way for me, if some people do yoga or some people meditate, mm-hmm. I spend 45 minutes with a really good Cuban watching the ash get longer and the cigar get shorter, and that for me is just as good as any uh, mandala drawing or any any sort of... Uh, 25 30 minute uh, focus thing as so I can I can sit there in complete silence uh, and just with a really good Cuban and I can just watch the ash get longer and I can follow that little orange ring of of, of, of fire as it goes down towards the corona on the cigar and I find that incredibly it makes me focus on anything but singing that's fantastic and it sort of takes me out of the game and it takes me out of my head for for 45 minutes. I love it. You know, and if I've got enough days after a performance, I'm always very careful about how many days I leave. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't smoke cigars if I'm within a week of a performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ever. Have you been to the Carnegie Club in, in New York? I have not. 
I think you need to go. I there. probably do. Although <laughs> in your, when I was seeing Tristan, so I was I didn't go anywhere near cigar <laughs> until imagine. after the last night. <clears throat> so let's talk about Tristan. Mm. This, this was your dream role, and you. I think it probably was. It was one of those things. Um, I'd been asked to do Tristan a lot over a long period of time, and had always said no. One, because at the time I was probably too young. Well, I was definitely too young. And two, this, you know, for me, Tristan was more than a dream role. It was my Everest. So I knew I wasn't going to sing Siegfried. I'd already decided that, that Siegfried was not in my cards. You and John Vickers. Yeah, Yeah, well, you know, I don't think we made the right sound Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. Siegfried. Siegfried for me is Manfred Manfred Jung Mm -hmm. in that wonderful Bayreuth production. Mm -hmm. Um, And from, yeah, I I just never, I don't make the Sieg, I don't have the Siegfried sound. And so I was always happy from a very early early stage to go, yeah, Siegfried's really not in my future. And everyone talked about Tristan being the thing that I would need to embrace. So it was more of an Everest than anything. And so for a long time, people would ask, and I kept saying, no, you know. And then the fateful day came, doing Das Lied von der Erde with Sir Simon Rattlett and Berlin Phil, mm-hmm. um, with um, and Sophie von Otter. And he, Simon comes to me at the end of the second performance and says, listen, do you sing Tristan? I said, no, I don't sing Tristan. But everyone t- keeps telling me that it's in it's an inevitability. He went, mm, okay, and that that was it. Nothing more about it. And less than three months later, I'm in Japan singing Peter Grimes with the national the the, the opera in Tokyo. And Vili Decker, whose production of Peter Grimes we're singing, comes to me and says, "Have you ever sung Tristan?" And I said, "No, but you're not the first person to ask me that." <laughs> And he said, did Simon ask you? And I said, yes. He said, well, because Simon and I are doing a new production together at the Metropolitan in 2016. And Simon had mentioned to me that he thought I'd be a great Tristan. And I said, well, I'm going to work with him in Japan. I'll, you know, I'll have a listen and see what I think. And so between the two of them, they had decided that I was the, their, 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 their choice. And ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll all agree that Heldon tenor Stuart Skelton is our choice. Listen to part two of my interview with him in one week. Come back, listen, and hear the heart of this sublime artist. And the curtain is down on center stage. <laughs> <laughs> 